Welcome to the Rancho Cordova podcast. My name is Charles Lego, and I'm your host. As many of you know, this podcast is brought to you by the California Capitol Film Office, right here in Rancho Cordova. And we at the Film Office also operate a small black box theater called CalCap Black Box Studios. And for the next four weeks, we are delighted to host a play by the Green Valley Theater Company here in the Sacramento region. My guest today is the artistic director of that theater company, Christopher Cook. And Christopher, welcome to the Roger Cordova podcast. Thank you so much for having me here. So why don't you tell us what is the Green Valley Theater Company? Why don't you give us a little rundown? We are a um, a local theater company. We're a, a community theater company in every sense of the word. We do a full season of Broadway-style musicals, so we do about four of those a year. Um, and then we do, in between each one of our main stage shows, we do a, a vaudeville-style... Oh, I guess you'd call it a cabaret of sorts in which we do a variety show that is kind of wild and body and fun, very reminiscent of the kind of German Weimar or vaudeville stuff. So we do that in between each one of our main stage shows. And as far as our main stage shows, we always do kind of kind of the offbeat, the stranger shows, things that might, we want to amplify voices that might not be heard elsewhere, do shows that are less popular, and then we always kind of finish off our year with the Rocky Horror Show, which closes on Halloween each year. We've been doing that for a decade and a half now. And you're well known for Rocky Horror here. Oh, yes. In Sacramento. How long have you been around? We've been around uh, since 2006. Okay, so 6, 16, 10, like 12, 13, 14 yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've been around a while. Yeah. Um, what is the favorite show that you've ever done? Oh, my goodness. Um, I'm not even sure if there's a favorite, but there is one that, like, lives kind of in, like... Well, stand out. Yeah, kind of, kind of lives in legend for the company, and that was a, um, a show called Shockheaded Peter. It was just Trudel Peter. It's based on the uh, Heinrich Hoffman children's book written in the eighteen in the eighteen fifties. Uh, the second, uh, as far as I know, I think I read that it was the second most popular children's book uh, in Europe after the Grimm's Fairy Tales. Wow! And so it's this, and it was converted to a play or adapted yes. to a play. Yes, totally. It was. It's this. It's this book of really just horrendous. Again, you can imagine 1850s Germany, a doctor thought that children didn't man mind their manners, so he writes these morality stories, which are really gruesome and fabulous. And um, there was this band, uh, the Tiger Lilies uh, from England. Um, they went ahead and got a hold of this. They are an accordion band, accordion, bass, and drums. And the lead singer paints his face kind of like a skeleton, and he sings in falsetto the entire time. And they took this, added some puppets to it, and it's him singing in falsetto the entire time. They added puppets and actors, a small cast. It opened across the street from The Lion King on Broadway, and it sold out. Wow. And then it had a sellout world tour, and it was insanely popular. Um, and ever so this is a famous 
yeah. musical play or whatever. Yeah, it's a it, famous musical. You know, it's only you know it's only twenty some years old as far as the musical goes, but the book itself is on its thousandth printing. Wow! So it's you know. It's, and you did that here in Sacramento. Yeah, we did it in Sacramento. Um, it was one of these things where we took our black box. We had a black box over on uh, V Street at the time, uh-huh. and we ended up taking it and doing what you shouldn't do with a black box, which is build a tiny proscenium set inside it. Which completely belies what a black box does best, which is immersive theater. So instead, we built basically a tiny toy theater with little cutouts, and it looked like an old-fashioned, you know, Victorian-era kind of little little cutouts of little opera sets and that kind of thing, and had a wind-up band off to the side with a big giant crank that kind of wound up our humans and got them playing in a... What looked like a Methodist kind of pulpit off to the side where someone could sing and be very judgmental of everyone. And it was, it just kind of lives wow. in history as this, as Green Valley history, as this fun, wild and show. It did, and it did well? Oh, yeah. We had to extend the run. We added shows, yeah. all that kind of stuff. Okay. And funniest part of the run, though, is we'd have people from mostly Austrian, German, there's a Danish family, and they would bring their children to this very gruesome, I mean, we're talking like thumbs getting cut off. Right, right. And people Did they lit know on fu- when they brought their kids? Oh, yeah. They walk yeah. in and they're like, oh, yeah, this is, this is, this, this. So they knew. This is our favorite story. Ruby did every night. That's, wow. And we're like, really? Okay, come on in. Look. Okay. <laughs> so let's go back to the beginning. How did your theater company start? We started as a community puppet theater. So basically, we started as a puppet theater, not as a children's entertainment, but as a participatory, large-scale puppet production. Basically, something that a lot of times, um, you know, when you think about community theater, you think about, oh, you do Willy Wonka, and you do, you know, uh, Sound of Music, and you do these kind of classic shows. But they're really where there really wasn't this place to do kind of these different kind of large scale, unless you're in academic theater, you really can't do these large scale um, puppet or I, I use puppet as a very kind of a loose term to describe just kind of a, a different way of telling stories through physical movement, through, well, through puppets, through just large imagery created on stage through stuff and people in movement. And so we started off as a puppet company. And then we. So you had puppeteers? Oh, yeah. Everyone was. Yeah. We, yeah. And it was. And we, we started. And where did you get the puppets from? Did you make them? Or? Oh, yeah. 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 We make all the puppets. Wow. Definitely. Some okay. of them were. And we always started. We're, we're a little strange as a puppet theater company. We don't do like children's shows. It's not like the kind of shows where there's like a little stage. No, and we, no. Was it adult? Uh, yeah. We actually started out as all ages, but we've moved into just doing adult shows. Right. Um, actually, it's funny to say it like that. Uh, I always say big people shows. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, uh, adult <laughs> puppet shows are very popular. They are now. Yeah. Um, forever, you know, puppet theater has been relegated to children's entertainment. Right. And it is, you know, it is it is just such a evocative art form because it is open ended. Right. And so that was kind of what we we started off as. We do, like I said, we are weird as a puppet theater company because usually puppet theater is. Like I said, children's entertainment, it's hand puppets, something that looks a little bit like Punch and Judy. And then later in life, puppeteers will always go, will always start to, you know, kind of break loose and kind of move out onto the stage where you can see the puppeteer at the same time as you can see the puppet. And so you end up with these very large scale kind of, you know, you kind of evolve into these large scale productions, things that are like uh, Julie Taymor, these kind of inspired kind of, kind of thing. Um more drawing on like a Japanese Bunraku style puppetry where the, the puppeteers are working together to create one character together and 
and and you're really not worried about the audience seeing the mechanics as it happens. And we're kind of going the opposite as a company right now. We have always been kind of out on the stage and everyone can see everything. And, you know, some of our puppets are so large, we enveloped an audience with one of them. And each hand was four feet by eight feet. And the head is this huge thing that had to drop down from wow. the fly system and the arms. And our poor, you know, it was the... It was the god of rain, and he's tossing our little hero back and forth through the audience. And now we're going the opposite direction. We're kind of bringing it internal. And some of the most fun shows we're doing right now are these very small, off the wagon. Well, I say off the wagon, literally off a wagon. We have a small little kind of renaissance wagon with a puppet stage in it. And we're kind of moving into that, moving what? back to the Punch and Judy and the little stuff now. But how did you start? Was it your brainchild? Or? Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, totally. So one morning you woke up, you thought, I'm going to start a theater company. Yes, absolutely. You did? Yes, you have stories to tell, and um, it's time to start telling them. And I had, I was working with a fiddler at the time, um, this amazing fiddler. Um, um, and we basically, it was... Her string students and my own folks, both from the university um, that I was working with at the time and um, other students. And so it was this all ages extravaganza that used music and drums and puppets to create story. And then since then, we have evolved into musicals. And the reason for that is just simply because we're a company that's always based on, we always want our work to come from those who are involved. We don't work from the top down. We work from the bottom up always, creatively and otherwise. So um, we don't choose a season and then try and find directors to direct right. it. We yeah. always Do have it yourself. Yeah, or we have to. Um, recently, it's been it's been mostly myself directing, but you know, um, in the past, it's been a different different director for every show. But it's always has to be a director that comes in and says, "I have to do this show," and the reason why I have to do it is because I can't not do it. So we'll get we'll, we're going to talk more about the theater company, but you're saying at the beginning how you woke up one morning decided to start a theater, which is a perfect segue to do something we do here and we get to know our guests. So where tell us about you? Tell us about Christopher Cook. So where are you from? Where were you born? Tell us about your parents. Tell us everything. Oh my goodness. Um, well, I'm a musician. I'm a. Um, I used well, where to... were you born? Oh, I was born in Half Moon Bay. Half Moon Bay. So yeah. just up the road. Yeah, out on the coast. Yeah, uh, just a little, little south of San Francisco. Um, uh, born in Half Moon Bay, and uh, uh, dad was a uh, a chemical uh, a project manager, uh, pro project management, uh, chemical waste management um, project manager, and my mother is was a scuba diver. She was. Uh huh. She worked for like for a living. Yes, she worked for Marine World before it went all. You know, with the rides and all that. Well, back in the day, it was a animal. It was very much on animal rescue, and they combined with a. Um, it was basically a marine animal park that ended up combining with a, a circus that went defunct, and so they rescued the animals from that. And, you know, there was a lot of grants for research, and they just did a lot of really good work. Again, this is all before all the rides and the Six Flags stuff and all that. When you say they rescued, you mean they rescued the animals from the theme park, uh, or from the ocean? No, from uh, you can imagine someone gets a someone has an exotic pet and they can't take care of it anymore because, <coughs> frankly, oh, you're not supposed to. You know? Right, right, right. Um, uh, injured animals. Oh, um, I see. They would get uh, an animal caught in a net, and at the same time, you know, though this is back in the '70s and '80s, so you know, 
nowadays there would be probably more of a push to try and get these animals back in the wild, but sometimes, um, you know, to care for and take care of these animals and to give them a good home and to provide a place for education right. does a lot more good for the populations of right, these right. animals in turn. So. so you were born on the ocean, basically. Totally. Right? Yeah. Just as you went to school in Half Moon Bay, high school and all that stuff? Uh, no, it eventually came up in, in, the, in this area, was up in the foothills, up in the gold country, and uh, uh, went to high school up there and uh, went to college at Sac State, was a uh, major in music, had an emphasis in education, in um, uh, performance, and then also an emphasis in uh, composition, and then ended up minoring in anthropology and art. Wow. So you, did you want to be a teacher? I don't know. Or did you get into, because you are a teacher, right? I am. I also yeah. teach. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I think teaching was just simply the job I did. Um, so when you were at college, what did you want to be when you grew up kind of thing? What, what was your thing? Well, I had every intention of being a professional musician. Uh -huh. And I was playing around, uh, playing around with different groups. I, you know, member of the union here in town and doing a lot of union work. Um, played for music circus for three seasons there. Um, so when you say a musician, like an orchestra type musician, totally, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, um, good. But musicians, you know, artists make their living in three ways. Right. They they play their instrument, they teach their instrument, and then they do something else that is related to it. You know, you can imagine. Oh, transcribing music or some such, you know. But so you're teaching it, you're playing it, and then you're doing all that other stuff with it. Wow. Um, and I thought that was going to be my thing. And I became very disillusioned at a certain point where I was playing, you know, I was playing some, I was playing some gigs in which just kind of seeing where some of the older players were in their life and their attitude towards playing and seeing the kind of just the kind of, I mean my friends who are still playing and such and former professors will probably um, take me to task for this but it was just kind of this dead-eye stare at the horizon this just horrendous kind of view of um, what playing their instrument even was and I mean and it just it was like no you know playing a yeah you play some shows in the I'm sitting back there on the clarinet and bass clarinet, and you've got these strings just kind of sawing away at Beethoven five again, and you know the trombone's just kind of, you know, and you're like, geez, this is, I got to do something else. Wow. And I got to tell you, I, I, that was my thing. I paid my way through college through playing jazz music, right? So played that and. Um, just gigging, gigging, gigging. I played way too many weddings. You know, I'm in four digits on weddings in my 30s, and you just go, 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 and you do. But it was like, oh, I could do something else. And I've always said the best thing an artist can have is a day job. Because then all of a sudden you're able to really enjoy yourself right. doing that art. Right. Now, some people, yeah, sometimes you move into a place where people pay you for it. or, um, And even then, though, to me, I'm not a... I'm, I'm not interested in the hustle of that. You know, you're, you know, it's, no, let's make art. Let's enjoy ourselves. Let's, let's f foster creativity as opposed to fostering everyone look at me. So. Okay. Um, uh, back to the, um, to your theater group, to the mm -hmm. Green Valley Theater Club. How many people 
are involved. You're the artistic director. Mm -hmm. So for people that don't understand theater groups, the artistic director is sort of the CEO mm -hmm. of the theater company and sort of directs policy and directs the direction of what you're going to do. Is there, do you have other people involved or mm -hmm. is it all you? Some, sometimes it's all one person. Um, it's, it's a lot of me right now because we don't essentially have a venue of our own. Right. And so, but in the past, I mean, the, um, the way the run, the company has run, you know, for the last decade or so has been, um, basically that the board is very much a working board as opposed to a fundraising entity. Um, the company runs very much like a for-profit. In other words, we backwards we are very careful with money. We backwards design every budget, and we basically always operate in the black. We never, we never, we never go in the hole on a show. Right. That's one of those things. We always, are you a nonprofit? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we're a nonprofit, but we're just very careful with things. And so as a result, um, the board has in the past, like I said. Um, basically operated it's been a creative board so to speak so it's folks who are directing it's people who are actually involved um turning the lights on and off yeah. and who bring skills to the to the table and creativity to the table as opposed to um fundraising to the table and maybe we've shot ourselves in the foot over the years with that but right. it also makes for a group that um doesn't put its its energies towards that it also makes it for a group that when we do have um donations of any size, $100 or a couple thousand that come in, um, it makes us just so immensely um, humbled and kind of very kind of very grateful. We're very careful with other people's money, even more than our own. Right. And so it just means that those kinds of things allow us to do even more and even more really wonderful work because of generosity of folks like right. that. So when it comes to the actors, do you have the same group of actors? that work with you, or do you, when you do a new play, you go out and you audition? Uh, when we do a new play, we totally audition from scratch. Yeah. Um, if anything, over the years, we've only had, I can count on one hand, the number of, of roles that have been precast, and those we advertise furiously, because you don't want to, you know, we don't like any chicanery of any sort. And so um, we always um, we always audition from scratch. So it's everybody, you know, we put it out there as much as we can, um, and yet a lot of the same folks keep coming back, which is kind of forms a company de facto, but we don't do any sort of thing where people are quote-unquote members and therefore able to kind of claim certain roles or anything like that. We don't we don't have a company and then choose shows for those people. We don't do anything like that. Um, and as a result, yeah, we do end up with a little more loosey-goosey kind of thing, but at the same time, um, we'd rather have folks involved who really want to be involved right. uh, as opposed to kind of, you know, we'd, anyway. If and that the makes sense. Does Sacramento have a good pool for actors, theater actors? We are a very large place. Yeah. You know, we're a huge region. And right. I don't think people really realize that. The hard part is just letting is getting the word out. Right. You know, we will put out everything we can, putting it all the usual places. We'll put it on um, on every website we can. We will push out and even for auditions. You mean. Auditions. Yeah. We'll put it out there, and yet still, folks will come back saying, "I didn't even know it happened." And it's wow. like, well, that is a challenge because we want to make sure that we get the word out for right. things. And obviously, we understand that uh, you know, certain shows interest people and certain don't, and so you know that's that. But a lot of people will say, um, uh, "We didn't even know about it," and you know, every company always kind of has the shadow of 
appearing insular all the time. Right. And we always try and fight that so, so much. Um, but, but when I, they come, is it a good pool of actors? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. The talent's always, yeah. it's, it's always an immensely talented group of people always showing up. It's yeah. really wonderful. And, um, and auditions, we always make a very, auditions are a very positive experience always. I mean, I was working with a director years ago who said something just that always has affected me, and that is that sometimes that audition is going to be the only experience somebody has with your company if you can't find a role for them or they aren't able to participate or this sort of thing. And so even the audition process has to be positive and has to be a good experience for those who show up. And so it's like, so we take that very seriously. It's like we have to, you have to run a good ship. It's not the people on one side of the table saying, oh, do you really want to be in? It's like, no, the actors are the greatest asset any company has because whereas I can direct the bejesus out of a show, I can spend a long time making those sets and our costume folks can just work their fingers off. Nobody comes to see that stuff. They come right. to see amazing actors right. telling stories and being incredible. Right. And so, yeah. So having produced theater, I know a little bit about it, there are two types of successful shows. <laughs> there is the successful show that you do and sells out and brings in the money. Then there are the successful shows that are critically successful, but nobody comes to see it. Have you had that? Or does everybody come? I find, at least what I'd hope that, I, I hear what you're saying. And I have let go of that now in my mind. And the reason is, um, and I'll use the example of the water bottle sitting next to you. If we can sell water, something that comes free from the tap, in a bottle, then we can go ahead and sell the arts. And to me, I don't think that there's a difference between critically successful, in term, like in terms of artistically successful, and financially successful. I find that if the story is good, then people will see it. I find that there will be failures of non-successful moments of advertising, non-successful moments of image, that sort of thing, but that if the show is good, the show's good. And at least a Sacramento audience we've found is not fickle in that way. A Sacramento audience, you know, I shouldn't, I'll back up. There are some audiences that want to see a known entity. They want to see the best version of Wizard of Oz because they saw it last time and they really like it. So they want to see it again. And the same thing with any other show. They want to see that, that version of Guys and Dolls and they, you know, they show up to see to see sugar, to see the tap dancing. Right. And then there's a whole other set of audience that could care less about that. Right. And if they see something. That's your audience, right? And that's our audience. Yeah. And so it's one of these things where to, to us, the artistically satisfying and the financially successful, or I should say the, you know, butts and seats are always tend to go hand in hand. And that's really just what we found right. yeah, with the Sacramento audience. It's really lovely. So the little that I, I mean, I've gotten to know you obviously over the few of the last few months. But the what I do know is that your shows are I wouldn't say edgy, but they're not what you're going to find at a regular theater, right? They're going to be unu not unusual. What's the word? Um, um, they aren't alternative. I guess yeah. I think I think it's you know a little arrogant to say that something's like you know ooh we're so edgy you know that well, kind edgy, of thing. Well, edgy is a good word. But yeah, edgy, edgy, edgy is a good word. It's going to be a show that you're not going to find at mm -hmm. a typical theater. So where do you find them? How do you? You're the artistic director, so you're the one coming up with the. How do? You, what's your process for that? 
um, every which way. Yeah. Sometimes it's the latest, coolest thing that's come off of Broadway. Sometimes it's the latest, coolest thing off Broadway. And so you're searching through those shows that the big companies and the big names and have come up with. And then at the same time, there is Deep Dive. Deep Dive is the using every single online algorithm you can use through every streaming service, whatever, and yet at the same time using the opinions of others. So you're searching through opinions and artistic to find lists and clips and whatever you can do to, to use those you also might like kind of things, right? But then there's also not just going by shows, but by going, going by companies that are creating amazing work. Right. Our last show was uh, by an amazing group, Les Enfants Terribles, um, a group, I think they're in London. I don't know if they were from there originally, but they were from London. And they just, every single thing they do, I look at going, Ugh, I just, oh, yeah, and they've published a few. And so we've done, you know, we Is started this off the show them. that I saw, the Halloween show? No, 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 no. What was that show? That was our cabaret. Cabaret, that's right. So you saw one of our cabarets that yeah. we drew from. You know, it's it's pop versions or old 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 timey versions of pop tunes and uh, dance numbers and all that wildness. Right. But the it was a show called Terrible Infants. We just did of right. theirs, which was, um, you know, just a macabre. Again, going back, maybe we're chasing shockheaded Peter again, but you know, it was this macabre children's stories kind of stuff. Right. Definitely for adults. Well, the show that I saw, the um, the Halloween show, you did it in downtown Sacramento mm-hmm. at a at a hall. Yeah, we were at using a, a church hall over at St. John's. They've been a really amazing. And I went to see that show, and I know what it takes to put on theater. I've done it. I know how difficult it is, and I have to say, I was blown away by the quality of everything, the quality of the aesthetic of the space itself that you had turned it into a theater, the staging, because you brought everything in, right? You brought in the pipes, the drapes, the stage. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, you had a blank oh, yeah. room. It's yeah. just a cement box. The costumes were phenomenal. Oh, the acting you. was excellent. It was music, musical. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very impressed. And that was the one and only show that I've seen. Um, so if that's the quality and the standard, then it's good. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. I got to tell you that those are the show that you saw was put together in only a few weeks. Yeah, that's our um, that's our like I said, it's our variety show, and so people think of it as you know it should always feel. We always have this thing where it should feel slapdash. It should feel as if there's a group trying to put on a performance and something's gone horribly wrong, okay. and yet behind the scenes we have to rehearse. So much, right. as you know, yeah. to go ahead and get it right. to get it to that polish, to right. get it to work, and yeah. um, really the only reason why something like that works is because of the people involved. And we'll get on to Bright Star in a second, which is the show that you have here. But um, talk about Rocky Horror, because you're known for Rocky Horror. We are now, now. I have seen Rocky Horror in my whole life, live. Maybe once, which oh, I know I is it. shocking, given that I'm in the theater. <laughs> you know, I was in the theater business, and I am today. So tell us about your Rocky Horror. Why is it so special? Um, Rocky Horror started off for us as a response almost to the Shadow Cast 
kind of phenomenon where people play the movie and then they get up and they and they move around and they have a lot of fun and they uh, and they act out and that's its own kind of genre of performance. That's great. Um, we grabbed the original stuff, the original live show that you know came right from the Royal Court and um, uh, Royal Court Theater and we. Basically, it's just a very positive and uplifting show, and we just had a great time doing it once. Then we're like, you know what? Why don't we do this a second time? I mean, well, we don't like to repeat shows, so maybe we'll do it again. So we did it bigger and better. Mostly it was because there were things about the first version that we were like, you know what? It'd be really cool if we did this. And you spend a whole year going, well, you know, it'd be really cool if we did this. Oh, you know in that one scene... Wouldn't it be great if, if we get a projection or a thing or a whatever, that kind of deal? And so you come out back to it next year, and then after that, it was off to the races. And by the time we got to the third year, um, we decided to take inspiration from kind of glam rock and even from um, a movement of Japanese aesthetic that takes kind of a... Uh, kind of takes inspiration from 70s glam rocks and, and, and does a very, you know, very... Um, different take on it so we kind of used those two kind of directions and we kind of created this glam rock thing and nothing ever changes like it's still the same show it's still the same there everything we're just talking about kind of the visual aesthetic of it you know nothing ever you know what I mean you can't you know le legally you don't change the show and you never would because you you know you're doing the show you do the show right. in my opinion and then after that we were off to this idea where well why don't we choose a new theme next year? And so now it's become this thing where almost every year it's like, what's the theme of Rocky this year? And we will have folks who will hit us up six, eight months in advance saying, so what's the theme for Rocky this year? Because they're putting their costumes together uh -huh. already. Um, and what time of the year do you do that? We always open about three weeks before Halloween and then close on or around Halloween night. Oh, so you run it for the month, for a yeah. month-ish. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it's just turned into this huge, massive thing. For performers, right. it is it is the gift you give yourself for having right. learned how to sing and dance all those years. And, and it's, it's very it's, interactive, I would imagine. It's right? immensely interactive. The... Uh, as we know, the movie and then the Shadowcast has what are called um, shout-outs. So it has the shout-outs. And the shout-outs are things that people shout rude things at the screen or they'll shout something before a line and then the, the film, the, the, the actor on screen says it and everyone laughs and it's very, very funny. Well, when you do this live, it means that you have to know that, those, that that's happening. At the same time, you can imagine somebody leaving a space in a line and nobody's saying anything and you're standing there with egg on your face. And so we have to carefully craft these shows to be like, if there's nobody saying anything, it has to be entertaining. And at the same time, you have to leave those pauses for someone to throw that rude word in right. that just slays the audience. <clears throat> um, and it becomes a rowdy, rowdy show. Wow. Um, for a lot of folks who have been on stage say that it is like unlike any other show performing because it is just sensory overload. You're standing backstage and those first chords hit, boom, bum, bum, and people are just screaming, the entire crowd, and they and there's no other show you do in which the first chords hit, and you have 150 people out front, just screaming. Wow. <laughs> are you planning this year's? Totally. Yeah, yeah we're planning you, this year. Do you, um, you know where yet or not yet? Uh, yeah, we're actually going to be at, uh, this year, the plan is to be at Westminster Presbyterian Church. Yes, they know we're coming. Uh -huh. <laughs> they
they have got a in their their church hall they've got a very cool old um kind of a 1920s vaudeville era theater that has the cute little footlights that fold up and this tiny little proscenium stage which is much too small to do any shows on and we just love it and think it's the greatest and um and so you know but it's a flat floor it's not a raked floor with and where risers is that? that is in right in downtown sacramento that'll be oh. owen 13th right at the capitol there okay. um it's got good parking and uh and frankly, the folks that work there are just really wonderful folks. Yeah, yeah. So it's nice to – same with St. John's. The only reason why we're at St. John's is just because they're amazing folks. Okay. Yeah, it's just an amazing place. So let's talk about the pandemic. <laughs> what happened? How, how did that affect you? Um, in a couple of ways. First of all, we – right before the pandemic, um, well, we lost our lease on our, on our black box theater over on Stockton Boulevard. We were right, right next to the UC Davis Med Center. And then – after that, we executed a lease on a space out in West Sacramento, and essentially that did not go well. Um, they didn't want us, and that was the end of it. And so, so you had a lease. We had a lease, and then they changed their mind. Uh, yeah, some really yeah. weird. Some they, really, maybe they heard about Rocky Horror. Well, whatever they heard about, um, there were some real, some real funky things that happened. Yeah. Some real not. It not, didn't end well. Things that should not have happened. Um, right. And so we were actually the second theater company that went to West Sac, and then even after executing a lease and going through the permit, pro all that stuff um, died, essentially. Wow. The other company doesn't exist anymore as a result wow. of going to West Sac, and uh, we survived. And we only survived based on the good graces of other places. And because we, for the pandemic and right before the pandemic and then during the pandemic, we climbed into bed with, um, with breweries. And we have found that we With breweries? are breweries, yeah. and we have found that we are a really good group for the beer drinking crowd, and we're really good at going into a space, setting up a theater, and putting on a show. Wow! As you okay. saw at St. John's, yeah, you know, yeah. so you saw that cabaret, and so we because were... breweries were open during the pandemic. Um, because a lot of them are outdoors, right? Well, basically, just being able to take care, take advantage of the either huge amount of square footage that comes along with right. a light industrial space of that right. sort. You know, right. there's usually a lot of times are these large open rooms. And so either able to take care of advantage of that or the uh, we were over at a, um, a campus brewery, which was just a really great relationship with them. Um, unfortunately, they didn't survive the pandemic, um, even despite our best efforts to bring in a lot of thirsty people, which we did. Um, but we were able to use their uh, out outdoors and right. so able to do things safely and Basically, we were – the pandemic was an exercise in how do we follow the rules. Um, and stay alive. And make it fun and yeah. do our thing. And But the truth is we were a peripatetic group at that point. We – our overhead was down to just our storage unit. Right. And so as a result, frankly, the pandemic, it's never been a better yeah, yeah. time to be a homeless theater I mean, company. it was very devastating to theater groups. Oh, yeah. Because theaters just closed. Totally. And they had to keep paying the rent or, or not. <laughs> and that was the difference. We didn't. Yeah, right. And so as a result, we've done just fine, actually. Yeah, um, yeah no, the outdoor stuff was actually very fun. Yeah. We ended up putting on a, con a really wonderful concert version of Spring Awakening. Got a nice orchestra out for that and wow. didn't think it would work. We're like, well, what would happen if we just had people walk up? We put 13 microphones for all 13 actors and everyone just stands up out of a chair and starts doing. Yeah. And it was amazing. Wow. What if we... 
ended up uh, having this great idea. I'm not sure it was the best idea, but I had this, what I thought was a wonderfully brilliant idea to go ahead and take our cabaret format that we do and blend it with uh, Baroque opera. So I took uh, <laughs> 17th and 18th century Baroque opera, and I went ahead and uh, got a bunch of... Uh, bunch of folks who do that kind of music and then we got the string players out for it so we got a small baroque orchestra and we got uh, the people who can do it and then we blended these just the best of the best of baroque opera we blended that with the dumbest comedy you could find that either takes place in renaissance period or that sort of thing we um added some old-fashioned versions of modern tunes, what you might call bardcore, where people are, you know, playing medieval lute-like style things but singing completely modern tunes. We blended that, and then we basically, you know, added in, made one of these giant pieces, you know, the overarching storyline was a, you know, was these two ladies getting married, and that's our show. Yeah. And so we had this big giant wedding at the end wow. with, again, these beautiful singers just going to town and just tearing the paint off the walls and I just love the fact that people showed up to drink beer and listen to yeah. 17th century opera <laughs> yeah. and the more beer they drink the more they like it oh my gosh yeah. there were some of those hundred degree days where yeah. we would be out there and you know we were it was a little rough to do outside and so at one I mean man one of these days we well we had always done our eight o'clock shows right and then all of a sudden we were doing our Sunday at seven o'clock and we got out there at around six fifteen, six thirty, and you, still, sun's still beating. Sun is still beating down, and we and you know it was a setting where you couldn't even set up your tech equipment until you're in the shade of the buildings around you. Right. And so we would have everything ready, and everyone, everything, all, all the mics are plugged in, and everything's ready to go, scuttling out, and then run the big cords to the big speakers and all this. And and I'm sitting there with a you know, these poor audience members are all staking out their places in their folding chairs. And I'm like, you know, this is terrible. We're going to, everyone throw your stuff down. Let's go inside. Let's start the show late. Once we have um, shade, we'll go right. ahead and bring it back. And everyone goes inside and just pounded beer. And then everyone came out to watch Spring Awakening. And it, it was like a Rocky Horror crowd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Are all your shows musicals? No. No? Um, they usually are. Yeah. But that was, again, the old, just the result of... And that's of... because of your music background, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I do a lot of conducting and started... That right. was how I got into theater was right. through music. Right. Um, no, originally the idea with the company, we had this charter at the... You know, kind of this informal charter where we're going to do four shows a year. One is going to be a farce, a play, a very funny farce. One is going to be an experimental puppet show. One is going to be a musical and one's going to be Rocky. And it turned into... Well, we do mostly musicals, <laughs> and that's just because that's what people were into. It's you know that's what folks yeah. wanted to do. And I happen to know you have a, a good following, which is a good sign, right? Because mm -hmm. people like it. So let's talk about the show that you're doing here, Bright Star. Yes. So Bright Star is written by Steve Martin, the actor. Mm -hmm. And as far as we know, this is the the Sacramento premiere of Bright Star? Yeah, it's a regional, regional premiere. premiere. Yeah, it's been done in the Bay Area and done in San Jose okay. and all that. Yeah. So give us just a quick synopsis of the play Bright Star, or musical, I should say. Yeah, it's uh, by Steve Martin and Edie Brickell, a name you haven't heard from the 90s most likely, and uh, Edie Brickell. And basically, they took a true story um, and obviously fictionalized, but it's based on a true story. It's a story of a um, a, a young lady. Uh, this is set in the 20s and in the 40s. And so it's about a, a gal who's um, 
you know, boy meets girl, love story, and their kid is taken away from them. Um, you know, they're, um, you know, put up for adoption. And years later, they, well, I don't want to give it away, but basically yeah. just no, that it is a, it yeah. yeah, just that it's a, um, you know, it's a show that see, it could have been written 50 years ago as a class, you know, you could imagine what's happening on stage as a classic musical, and yet at the same time, it could have been written yesterday. Right. And it has music. Oh, yeah. has some amazing bluegrass music, um, you know, based very much on, you know, based around the banjo. You know, obviously Steve Martin being an amazing banjo player and composer. And so we have an amazing banjo player, Andrew Seeger, who's in for this. And he is, you know, it's kind of show where a lot of these numbers you just have to memorize. You just have to know the number. Right. There's a there's some really great videos of uh, Steve Martin showing the the guys who played it on Broadway showing them how to play it and <coughs> in those videos he's like well you just got to do it like this and they just kind of like and he, like they learn it like banjo players learn a lot of music which is by listening and doing and learning one to one as opposed to written on the page and so he's had to learn it that way he's had to just learn it and do it takes what three or four banjos to even play the show, different tunings and all that wow. stuff. And then we have an amazing fiddle player, um, Annie Koch, who's just done everything and um, a really brilliant fiddler um, and classical musician as well. Um, but she's here. Um, and then uh, our cellist is cellist with the Camellia Symphony. And I think he also plays with Folsom Symphony. Might be Auburn, I can't remember. Um, our bassist is a longtime player with us who has just done a ridiculous amount of musical theater and it's just uh, the guy you always want playing bass in your orchestra um music uh, director Deanne goals who piano player who has played uh, played for years as kind of the house kind of uh, you know director for all the places so everyone and then of course uh, peter haldorf on the washboard because right. what good bluegrass show right, would right be. without a washboard right <laughs> so we actually have a clip that we're going to play what what is the clip we're going to hear uh, this is from uh, just our, our rehearsals. We decided to record some of our rehearsals. This is Whoa Mama. And this place t- takes place in the show where the two lead characters are, you know, they're two young kids. They're, you know, in their late 20s who are saying their late teens. And they have just, um, you know, they're kind of starting to f- flirt a bit more. It's kind of become a little more serious be- between them. And Whoa Mama is what's called a, um, in musical theater a conditional love song. That's a song that happens at the beginning of a musical in which two characters say, well, I would love you, but kind of like you can imagine people will say we're in love or um, if I loved you, this is how I would act. Because you can't have two characters that sing their undying love to each other when they've just met at the beginning of a musical. So this is Woe Mama, the conditional love song. Well, let's take a listen. You're a young girl. And you ought to know better than to be here. What would everybody think? Whoa, mama, better back up slowly. Make a quick getaway. Hurry on home. Whoa, mama, the rate you're going. Your pop will get a shock and have to run. Men off, they'll hide in the shadows. Fall out of trees. Wait by your window. Whisper, bless you when you sneeze. Someone will look at you just like this. Someone will ask you. You're a smart girl, make a fool of somebody. I'm a smart guy, and I know that it won't be me. We'll see. Whoa, mama, take a second look before you set your 
sights on me. Yes, baby. Oh, I mean, yes. That's that must be just what I'm. Yeah. That is some music. Well, that was very good. Banjo by Andrew Seeger. Mm-hmm. And Washboard was there. Did I hear a washboard? Yeah, totally. We even uh, thought we'd be very cute when we recorded that. We stuck them on, a, uh, on, on the barrel. We have a uh, French whiskey barrel that we just keep putting in every show. And we're like, hey, let's put them on the barrel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and knowing the space, obviously, I know the space very well. That's going to sound really good. We are okay. trying an experiment with this. And yeah. that is we've decided to try to do the entire show unmiked. Yeah. So we're doing the show without any amplification. The only amplification we used was actually on our bass. Right. Um, because of the nature of it, we wanted just a little more oomph. But other than that, um, there is no amplification. But Everyone nobody is... should worry about not being able to hear because oh, it's no. an intimate theater. And actually, you're right on top of the action. It's, oh, uh, it is. It is. We are seats, part of it. Yeah. So anybody coming to see the show, you're part of the show. Oh, absolutely. And there's no way you're not going to hear. You're definitely going to hear. Oh, yeah. If you wear a if you wear your overalls and a slouch cap, I'll probably give you a banjo and stick you on stage. So tell us the uh, – we'll, we'll listen – as we're going out of the show, we'll listen to another clip. Mm-hmm. But tell us uh, tell us the show. When does it open? When does it close? What, um, are, you know, what are the times, et cetera, et cetera? Mm-hmm. We are opening Friday, um, February 17. We're going to run until March 12. And our shows always do uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, 8 o'clock, 8 o'clock, and 7 o'clock. Uh, we won't be doing a, a, a Sunday show this first weekend. We decided to toss that on our final weekend. So we have a 2 o'clock matinee, which is actually the most selling show so far. So if you want to, uh, if you uh, are more of an afternoon show kind of person, make sure you snag our single matinee. The rest of our matinees of our 7 o'clock on Sundays. And anybody wanting to buy tickets, where do they do that? Uh, greenvalleytheater.com forward slash tickets and that's theater spelled with a T-R-E so that's uh, the British way the correct way the, yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the uh, greenvalleytheater.com um, and tickets are uh, tickets are 20 bucks we keep things cheap we're still one of the cheapest yeah. uh, tickets in town uh, you can visit us on Facebook's kind of our best way of finding stuff right now and if you want to see any clips of the show we've got those on Facebook um, there's obviously we do Instagram the other things but really kind of our crowd tends to be a Facebook crowd and so yeah and people can have a beer a coffee a Diet Coke uh, we definitely have concessions all that stuff and we're still working on uh, whether or not we'll be uh, doing beer wine that kind yeah. of stuff we'll okay. be looking at that sort of thing okay mm-hmm. Tell us the date one more time, then we'll say goodbye to our audience, and then we'll listen to another clip. We are opening on February 17, and at the time of recording this, we're in what's called Tech Week, which means we are furiously working every night to put this together. And so, that I can attest to. <laughs> so February 17, that's a, a Friday. We'll be running Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays until March 12. And again, you can get tickets at uh, greenvalleytheater.com. And it will sell out, so people should definitely... Oh, get yeah. your tickets. It's going to be it's 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 a small theater, and we love it that way. Well, Christopher Cook, artistic director of the Great Green Valley Theater Company, thank you for being on the Roger Cordova podcast, and thank you for listening. And here is another song from Bright Star by Steve Martin. Thank you.